Welcome to Practical Christian Living. If you and I suddenly faced persecution, it would really make us come to that point where we give that gut check. Are we serving God because it's better for us? Or are we serving God because we have been called by Him? He has called us to be His children and we have followed Him because we have been drawn to Him. As Jesus said in John chapter 7, no one comes to me unless the Father first draws them. What's the blessing of persecution? Well, it forces us to re-examine our hearts and our motives for being a true follower of Christ. And it makes us realize how precious is the calling to spread the gospel. Whatever degree of persecution or hardship you may be facing today, may it strengthen your faith and your walk with Christ. Today on Practical Christian Living, we begin a series through 1 Peter as we study the blessings of putting our faith to the test. Here's Robert Furrow. Father, we want to thank you, first of all, for your word. But we think specifically of the New Testament, these men, these apostles that you chose and poured your life into, that you anointed and empowered and gave them the position that they would write the Word of God. We thank you that we can take time now to look at what Peter had to say to these churches in Asia Minor during this difficult time to be alive. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths that we study tonight and really work them deeply into our hearts. And all of these different topics that we're going to cover through the book of 1 Peter, we pray that you would prepare us before we get here that we would be able to cover these deep biblical truths, but also very practical in how they are applied to our lives. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter and John Mark, the book of Mark, is most likely Peter's gospel. Peter's the one that gave Mark the information for the gospel that he has. The book of 1st Peter is written during a time of persecution for the early church. It's a time when persecution stepped up. You would think that when God started the church, that he would start it with a a nurturing kind of a window, kind of a protection like we do for children. We protect them. We nurture them. Us as parents, we probably protect them and nurture them too long, right? And they finally fight their way free or claw their way free to be able to to do what they want to do. But God didn't do that with the church. As soon as the church began, there was persecution. And James, the apostle, the disciple, was killed, the brother of John. And Stephen, one of the early deacons in the church, was martyred as well. And there was this persecution in Jerusalem that put pressure on the church. And they went out all over the known world, especially up into Asia Minor, up around what would be Libya today, and up around into Turkey as you go up over the Mediterranean Sea. And that whole area there, known as Asia Minor then, known as Turkey today, was the place where the gospel spread from Jerusalem. And it spread under persecution. Paul, the apostle, the last apostle, Jesus said the last would be first and the first would be last. It's interesting that Paul wrote more of the New Testament than any of the other apostles. He said of himself, I am an apostle as one born out of time. Paul was part of this early persecution in the church. 
He called himself the chief among sinners because of the persecution that he brought to the church. Well, after spreading throughout the known world and the missionaries' first work were usually to go to the Jews, bring the message of the gospel to the Jews in an area or a town or a city, and then to take it to the Gentiles. When there was rejection among the Jews or after several Jews had been saved, they would break it out to the Gentiles. So the early church had this mixture of Jews and Gentiles that had committed their lives to Christ. And in the first 10 years, they had to figure out, what are we going to do with Gentiles who are getting saved and following Jesus? Are we going to make them become Jewish? Are we going to make them be circumcised? Are we going to make them have to live the law? Are we going to make them be kosher? In Acts 15, they decided we are not going to put any of those requirements on any of the Gentiles. And for about 30 years, the gospel was preached under those conditions. Still some persecution from the Jewish people. But on, I believe it's April 19th in 64 AD, a fire started in Rome that changed everything for Christians. The gospel had spread as far as Rome. Many of the prominent Roman citizens' wives were giving their lives to Christ. They were, churches were being planted all around not only Asia Minor at this point, but it had gone over into, into today, what is Europe, then was Macedonia, and the gospel was spreading. Then a fire started in Rome. There are two different historians that tell two different stories. There's actually five historical stories as to how the fire started in Rome. But there's really only three options. One of them is that Nero, who had been the emperor for about 20 years, started the fire in Rome, either on purpose or accidentally. These are historians from shortly after his time that tell us that he started it. One says he started it on purpose, that it was a, it was a full moon, that he sent people out with torches. They started to clear an area in order for him to rebuild. He wanted to rebuild a portion of Rome, probably not the entire city. It probably got out of hand. But who knows when you're dealing with a madman like Nero. I, I, I like when you're reading about the fire in Rome and they say, well, Nero wouldn't have burned the entire city as if he was, you know, somehow sane. He was an insane man. Who knows what he would do? So three of the stories say that he burned Rome. One says that he was in a room uh, while it burned, playing a fiddle. Another one says that he was in a tower watching the city while it burned. Another one says that he was in his palace while he burned. These are all historical accounts. Another historical account says it just started by accident and they blamed Nero. And the, the, the fifth account is started by Nero himself and that is that Christians started the fire. And Nero probably... Titicus, who's probably the most reliable of the historians, probably wrote, Nero was not in Rome. He was in the city of Antium, is what Titicus says. And that when he came back, he was being blamed for the fire. And these rumors spread about this cynical builder who would burn down the city of Rome. And in order to kind of gain control, he was looking for a scapegoat. Christians, there were these rumors going around that they were cannibals, that they were killing children, that they were having orgies that they were drinking blood. These were going all around Rome at the time. And so Christians became an easy scapegoat. He gathered, arrested some Christians, dipped them in tar and hung them up in his gardens. It said that Nero rode his chariot naked through the gardens while Christians were burned alive in it. He began to take the children of Christians and put them into the arena and turn wild animals loose upon them. He began to persecute them in what became the first of the great 10 persecutions of the church. And it, it spread not only 
in Italy, but it spread throughout Europe and also throughout Asia Minor so that Christians were being killed, murdered, and tortured for their faith and worse, for their faith. It's interesting that throughout history, that's always been the same. As I took time to research this particular beginning of the persecution, the beginning of the Roman persecution. The church was already used to persecution because of the Jewish persecution. But now this is stepped up at the beginning of this persecution to watch the news and see thousands of Christians who are being killed today in Iraq. And to see, you know, 80% of the persecution that takes place around the world is for Christians. And I can't help but wonder I don't like to get political, but I can't help but wonder if it were Christians rampaging in Iraq, killing Muslims, if the United States wouldn't work differently than if it's Muslims rampaging, killing Christians. If you reverse that and flipped it, I wonder how the United States would respond and react to it. But there are Christians today all around the world, not only in Iraq, but all around the world who are losing their lives simply because they are Christians, simply because they have chosen or were born into a family that follows after Christ. The same thing. So the persecution began and it was tough. For, for a lot of them, they had been able to escape the Jewish persecution. They had committed their lives to Christ and things were going pretty good. And now all of a the sudden, their lives were being taken from them. They were being threatened. For, for those that had a shallow faith, they left. If all of a sudden there was persecution for our faith today, no doubt some in this room would leave. Some would say, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. I don't want this. And they would leave. But the persecution in the, in the early church did the opposite. People dug in. It was as if persecution caused them to check why they were following Christ and they dug in and they shared their faith more and they took risks for the gospel that ended up costing them their lives. And so as Paul writes this letter, that is, excuse me, as Peter writes this letter, that is foremost on his mind. He brings up persecution in every chapter. He talks of Christians being maligned and lied about. He talks about Christians having a false report against them. He talks about these lies that were spread in Rome that allowed the, the Roman population to kind of start this persecution that ended up spreading throughout the entire world. Now, years ago, I heard John MacArthur say that if the, the best thing that could happen to the church in America is persecution. That if the church in America were persecuted, that we would knuckle down and do what we're supposed to do. Now, I don't necessarily want that, but I think I agree with them. If you and I suddenly faced persecution, it would really make us come to that point where we give that gut check. Are we serving God because it's better for us? Or are we serving God because we have been called by him? He has called us to be his children and we have followed him because we have been drawn to him. As Jesus said in John chapter 7, no one comes to me unless the Father first draws them. There's no one that's come to Christ out of their own volition. It is because God drew them and then you responded. You reacted to the drawing of God into your lives. And so as we, we open up the letter here in first, the first chapter in verse 1, it, it simply says Peter. And we could probably just spend the rest of the night in that word, Peter. 
First of all, I need to say that there are scholars, and I really fight doing air quotes when I say scholars, who say that the book was not written by Peter because it's written in Greek and it's written in a refined Greek. So some say it is as refined as the Greek as Paul writes with. So some believe that the letters of First and Second Peter should be written, said that they are written by Paul. They also note that motifs that are found in Paulinian letters are also found in Peter. And so they try to make a connection. But what they don't tell you when they try to make that connection is those same motifs are found in the book of James, written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And the same motifs are, are, are found in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, written by John, again, one of the disciples, one of the prominent disciples. So that when I see the same motifs coming up in 1st and 2nd Peter as in the rest of the New Testament, I see the true authorship being revealed. I see that the Holy Spirit is being revealed that he's the one that gave it to Paul and gave it to Peter and gave it to James and gave it to John, what to write. There is, a, there is a common thread that runs through the New Testament. It's the work of the Holy Spirit revealing to us the truth of what God does. To someone on the outside, looking at the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter, wondering how they could come to the same ideas and the same thoughts, we see God behind the scenes. With all the doubts that scholars have about Peter being the, the author, they always come to the end of their doubts by saying, but it is very possible that Peter wrote this book because there's nothing that stands out that says that Peter didn't write it. In fact, they will say, usually, if it wasn't Peter, it was most likely one of his students that wrote it in his name. But you find references to the book of 1 Peter as early as 70 and 80 A.D., and if you find references as early then, it had to be written before that. So there's no reason to say that Peter couldn't have written this book after the Roman persecution started. There's no reason to. Now, when you look at the name Peter, we remember that Peter was given that name by Jesus, right? He starts off by saying Peter. And when Peter was brought by his brother Andrew to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon. And from now on, you shall be called Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic for the name Peter. Peter is the, the Greek name. So you are Peter, you are Cephas, which is Peter. And they both mean rock. And it's interesting that when Peter would act in his flesh, when Peter would not be seeking after the things of God, Jesus would call him Simon. He'd go back to his old name. He gave him a name right away. It was as if he looked at Peter, who was... was probably incredibly capable as a leader from the very beginning. I'll explain why I think so in a moment. But he looked at Peter as Peter walked to him and he thought, walked at him and he thought, okay, this is the guy. There's four, there's four times that we're told who the 12 disciples are. In all four of those times in the gospels, Peter is at the top of the list every time. And even though there was Peter, James, and John, we know more about Peter, what Peter asked, what Peter said and the mistakes that Peter made than any of the other disciples. It was as if God was going to show us interaction with ourselves through the disciples and he knew he couldn't do it through 12 of them. So he chose one guy, one guy that would be a lot like us. And we, we almost all of us identify with Peter to a degree. Peter was probably extremely capable as a leader, but Jesus knew immediately, I got a lot of work to do with this guy. 
I, I got to get him to be spiritually minded. I, I got to get him to give up the ideas of the flesh. And so when Peter would blow it, Jesus would say to him, Simon. At one point he said, Simon, Simon. He <laughs> said it twice. As if just, and that must have just stung because he told him, you are Simon, but from now on you will be Cephas. And so when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, it must have just been like two blows to his face. Ah, ah. Oh. There's two, two different times when, when the New Testament uses the name for Simon. The name Simon instead of Peter. One of them is when you're talking about who he was in Capernaum specifically. It says that Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law and they went to Simon's house. So it just seems that when they're talking about Peter in Capernaum, moving around that area, that the name Simon is used. It was his name. They wanted to make sure that they knew who they were talking about. The other time is when he makes mistakes and Jesus refers to him as Simon. I wonder if... Uh, if we had a, two different names like that, I wonder if when we came to Christ, Christ just gave us a new name and we got called by that name. And if we just heard every time we were in our flesh or every time we were seeking our own way, he would call us by the other name. I wonder if that might not help to straighten us out some. It would sure help us to know the, the mistakes that we were making, wouldn't it? It's interesting that John in the book of John calls him Simon Peter 20 something times throughout the book. As if John is saying, I'm not really sure whether Peter's in the flesh or in the spirit. So I'm just going to call him Simon Peter every single time because I don't know if the guy's acting by his old name and his new name. Even after the resurrection and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Peter preached the first message and thousands got saved and Peter became a, an obvious leader in the church. Paul says that he came to Galatia and he was eating with the Gentiles. But then when some people showed up from James... James was the half-brother of Jesus and he was the leader of the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And these were all Jewish believers. And when some of the, the leaders came from, from the church in Jerusalem, they saw Peter and Peter withdrew from the Gentiles and sat down in the isolated place to eat with the, Gentile, with the Jews that had come from Jerusalem. And Paul says, I withstood him to his face. And he calls him a so-called pillar. You can tell that Paul, just as annoyed as can be with Peter, even after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, even after he makes this mistake, and Paul says, this so-called pillar came and I withstood him to his face. Now that's funny when you picture what history says about these two men. History says that Paul was balding, short, bow-legged, and his eyes bulged. And Peter was a big guy. And so here comes Paul, bow-legged and bulging eyes. And he points his finger at Peter and withstood him to his face. I don't care how big the guy is. He's wrong. And, and can you imagine how he made the Gentiles feel when he withdrew away from them as if suddenly they weren't accepted by God and Paul was upset with Peter on it. But in reality, which one of us don't make mistakes? Which one of us don't vacillate from time to time? Which one of us wouldn't be called, if we had two different names, wouldn't be called by that first name as well? No one, we don't learn as much about any of the disciples as we learn about Peter. No one asks as many questions as Peter does. No one leads the disciples like Peter did. It says, and Peter asked this question, and then it would say, and so did all the other disciples. And then Peter says, I will, I'll serve you until I die, and so did all the other disciples. We see that there's a natural sense of leadership there with Peter. 
No other disciple is as rebuked as Peter. And I think I'll let that stand, even, even more than Judas. Judas is, when Jesus gives him the bread, go and do what you do quickly. There's a rebuke there. But to Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but you're mindful of the things of man. He called Peter Satan. That's pretty tough. And it was tough for, for Peter to take because Peter had rebuked Jesus. By the way, he's the only disciple that rebuked Jesus as well. No other disciple had the nerve to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. Lord, these things are never going to be. You are never going to give your life. You're never going to die. And Jesus rebukes him back. <laughs> Jesus is like, and at that point, Peter was tempting Jesus as Satan had tempted Jesus to avoid the cross. And now Peter takes the place of Satan in becoming a temptation for Jesus to avoid the cross. No wonder he said, get behind me, Satan. It's the same temptation that Satan had given to Jesus when he said, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. They'll all be yours. Peter gives him the same kind of a temptation. And Peter failed greatly when he denied Jesus. And for someone like Peter who was so confident in his flesh and so sure that he would never deny the Lord, Jesus said, tonight, all of you will be scattered. For the scriptures say, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And Peter says to the Lord, I will not scatter. And then Jesus says, Peter, you will deny me. And Peter says, even if every one of these other guys denies you. I wonder how the other guys felt as, as Peter pointed that out. Even if all of these guys around you deny you, I will never deny you. And he went through the power of his flesh to try to prove that. Even though Peter denied Jesus, I don't believe it was from a cowardly instinct. I believe Peter's instinct was to die for the Lord. And that's why when he was arrested, Peter went off after him. Now he did kind of get a servant of, he didn't go after one of the soldiers. He went after one of the servants, but he's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. And he was probably going for the head and he got the ear. Because you don't try, you don't, you don't try to, it's not, you're not filleting somebody. You're not trying to finesse an ear off. You're going for the head. And he misses and he gets an ear. And then he gets rebuked by Jesus. And he's confused. And the only two that follow Jesus is John and Peter. And John follows close by Jesus. But Peter follows at a distance. He follows the torches. And John whose family knows the high priest's family, gets led into the courtyard. And so John is in the courtyard, but he's there as one of the disciples of Jesus. Peter, John comes out, sees him, brings Peter into the courtyard. And while he walks by the gate, a girl says, you're one of his disciples. And he says, no, I'm not. And he goes and he warms himself at the fire. And somebody says something to him. And they say, hey, we recognize your, your accent. You're a Galilean like him. You're one of his disciples. We've seen you with him. No, I'm not. I imagine that Peter probably stood out like a sore thumb. People had seen him. He'd seen him with Jesus. If he truly was a big guy, bigger than the rest of the disciples, then when you saw Jesus and the 12 disciples, you probably saw Peter. Probably stood out. When Peter denied him the last time, the Bible says that he looked across the courtyard and Jesus looked at him. They caught eye contact. And, and Peter went outside of the courtyard and the Bible says wept bitterly when all of a sudden he realized that 
He'd done exactly what the Lord had said to do. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.